Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side-by-side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at NerdWallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com consulting. IBM, let's create. I think there's something that happens during a film shoot in which there's just adrenaline that is running for 35 days straight. And suddenly when you thought you couldn't live a day without a nap, you can go 18 hours straight without ever blinking. You know what I mean? Like it, it takes over in that time, something takes over. And actually I feel that your brain function is probably working at like quadruple the amount of when we were writing at night, I had to process what we had shot in the day and looking forward to, you know, it was an insane time where, and that's what, that's the weird thing. It's like, as filmmakers, we only have those 35 days, like once every three years. And it's weird because it's not like we're practicing our livelihood on any given day, except those 35 days, you know? And so it's a weird thing to, to do. And, and I, and I feel that it's just, you're, you're just, you know that you have to get through that time and you just battle your way through it. That was Sean Baker. I'm San Fragoso. This is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. week on the podcast, I sat across from Lois Smith. Some of you perhaps have not listened to that episode. If you haven't, I would say it's a personal favorite of mine from this year. In it, we go over 87 years of life. But something I've thought about all week is her description of the award tour that she has been on for Marjorie Prime. She's talking about her career and her performance in this film that is very lovely. And it's a wonderful experience. But Her line, and I am paraphrasing, is something like, yeah, maybe nice to do this once. I mention this because the Florida Project made its premiere in September, 
at the Toronto International Film Festival. And since then, Sean and I have been trying to figure out when the hell we were going to do this episode of the podcast. And it's probably been written about, but the award circuit that the industry puts someone like Sean or anyone who's having these films be considered for the Oscars, the award circuit we put these folks through is bizarre. It's bizarre for everyone. They're traveling cities, sometimes countries, sometimes continents for like six months to promote a movie being asked the same 12 questions again and again. It is a tiring exercise. Regardless, I'm glad we finally found the time to do this. I think it it kind of proves my theory that I think things happen when they're supposed to happen. This conversation with Sean is very much a conversation at the tail end of a long, long awards campaign. Um, if things go well in January, there will be more campaigning for the Oscars, and I hope that for him. But over the next hour, you're going to hear us go into detail about his childhood in New Jersey, going to college at NYU, making now six feature films. But most importantly, I think you'll get a sense of Sean's spirit. That's something that's really hard to do when you're asked to talk about yourself for like four or five straight months. But it was really great to see him open up about not just the process of him making these movies, but his headspace while making them. Also, in this episode, every now and then you'll hear a voice that seems far away. She wasn't far away. Sitting next to Sean throughout the interview is his partner, Samantha. I usually don't let people sit in on these conversations because they're intimate and I think they work best one-on-one. But it actually works out. I think having Samantha here um, makes Sean and I both be a little more honest and forthright to each other in a way that I didn't expect. Anyway, there's much more I can say about writer-director Sean Baker. If you have not seen Starlet, Tangerine, and now The Florida Project... You absolutely should. He's one of my favorites making films right now, and I'm glad we sat down to have this conversation. So, without further ado, here is Sean Baker. Run me through the last two months of your life in terms of uh, traveling and feeling crazy? It's actually, I, I think there really hasn't been a break. I think there has been one day off since Toronto and uh, it's been insane, you know, but in a, in a good way, it's been exhausting. Um, we are basically on the press tour for the Florida project. So in, and it doesn't, it's not just the domestic it's not just for the domestic release, it's for our European release as well. So I've been country hopping and uh, getting a lot of jet lag along the way because we only spend about a day in each country. Mm. And then I'm back and forth from here. So, so it's, you know, it's, it's been a lot of work and a lot of interviews and a lot of uh, Q&As. I think we're up to like around 40 Q&As at this point, which it's so <laughs> monotonous because it's the same question it's the same every questions, single yeah. time. That we had a Q&A last night at the Real D Theater in Beverly Hills, and it was moderated by the wonderful Kristen Kiwi Smith, who wrote Legally Blonde, and she's she's great. And her... You know, her questions were were definitely a little different than the norm. And plus, there were high schoolers. It was like a high school film uh, club or class 
there, and that was interesting because, I don't know, high schoolers are coming at film a whole different way. They're very influenced by YouTube, and they're they're doing a lot of mobile filmmaking, you know, Mm. mobile phone filmmaking. So that was a little bit... uh, that was nice. But but for the most part, these Q&As are the same old questions again and again and again. And then you feel you get actually sick of hearing your voice and you start to bore yourself as well. And you're just like, <laughs> I just want to shut up. But then if you shut up, you're not you're not even answering the questions completely. Right. And the audience is left in the dark. So I would say the best Q&As are when I have Brooklyn with me or Willem. Mm-hmm. Or Mella, Mella Murder, who played Ashley in the film. She's quite articulate and always speaking from the heart. So she will get up there and just give a nice, like really um, emotional statement on the big picture of the movie. And she'll always get the audience to, you know, a round of applause for her. So it's it's great when I have support. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think it's strange because you made this movie as something that meant a lot to you Mm. and you put all your heart and energy into the art and the process of making it. And then if it goes well, if things go right, Mm. you're asked to talk about it in such a fashion that is like the opposite of where this film came from. Yes, exactly. You, you start for me, especially I'm being forced to analyze why I make these things, which I hate to be asked that because (laughs) then then I, I feel that it leads to contrivance I'll be too conscious of why I'm doing something on the next the next time out. So that is actually, and there's this constant like, a, you know, which is you know obviously it's good to talk about, but it's this constant. Sean, you 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 focus on marginalized people. You focus on marginalized people. It's like it's 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 almost to the point where it's it makes it seem like I have it's a gimmick. It seems like it's my thing. It's like, it's my M night Shyamalan twist thing that's going on in every film, which is not the way I've approached these movies. Though, to be fair, yeah. that's not the worst twist to have. <laughs> if you and have no, to have course. one. <laughs> no, of course, of course. But I'm being forced to have to articulate what I think reason reasons why I do this every single time. And most of the time, these movies just come from a place, uh, a very organic place where it's really from the heart, just wanting to explore sometimes a location and not even understanding the subculture that exists there until we actually start doing our research. So, and look, now I'm talking about it right now, (laughs) but, but what I'm trying to say is that this, this, this has, this has gotten to the place where it's a little monotonous. And then the other thing that's very stressful is that people are, have to ask you what's next. And that's, mm-hmm. and I'm in a place where I honestly don't know what's next. And yet we, we've been talking about ideas, but the, the ideas are small at this point. We have no scripts. They're just ideas we're throwing around and we're not in the place where we even want to talk about them. But, but uh, that's a constant, uh, there's a constant poking there. And there's not just, not just in the Q and A's, but from the agencies, from producers, from, right. you know. Um, Everyone's very eager to know. Yeah, it's 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 um it shouldn't be decided right when you have a film in release. Mm-hmm. It should be something that you take your time with and let the inspiration come and see how this film actually see what your what your current film does in terms of uh the impact it has. And because that in many ways will dictate what comes next. But does it make you feel when you're on this tour that like whatever you make is not enough 
for those people. The agent asking you for the next mm. thing, a press, someone, a journalist saying, what's your next project? Yeah, there's that. And then there's also just the, almost you feel obligated to have to explain the film that people just saw. It's like that, you know, there's that famous, uh, I love that David Lynch uh, clip where he's like, uh, I'm going to, I'm, I'm not quoting it, you know, perfectly right now, but he says something along the lines of like, that's the film. That's what I wanted to say. All I want to say is up on the screen and that's it. <laughs> I mean, it's different with my films because obviously there are issues to speak about afterwards. And especially in this case where we're talking about the hidden homeless and that of course is something I do want to talk about. Yes. But when it's a constant, like, well, tell us where your ideas come from. Tell us where it's like, you know, just, just, yeah, these, these questions get a little monotonous. Well, and also I wonder about its intentions. Like, is, mm. it, is it intentioned to, is, do they want to understand you or is it that they want to be able to easily categorize you? I, that, I don't know. I guess it all depends on the audience. I really don't. Yeah. Mm. It's tough. I don't really want to know about the why. Let's just go with the how. <laughs> um, you're born February 26, 1971. Oh, jeez. I want to back up. <laughs> Summit, New Jersey, which I think you said in the past is 20 minutes outside of Manhattan. It's is that right? 20, 25 minutes. Yeah. I, that was just the hospital I was born at. I mean, I didn't grow up there. I grew up next door in Short Hills, New Jersey, up until fourth grade. And then we moved out to a rural area, Somerset County, which is about... 35 minutes out of the Holland Tunnel, mm. directly west. And, uh, yeah. Were you going into New York often, or were you thinking I about actually it? was very lucky to have experienced seeing New York in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, your father worked in Manhattan, right? Right. He worked on 57th and Broadway, so basically we'd have to go through the Lincoln Tunnel. The Lincoln Tunnel takes you right down 42nd Street. And oh, that was also the great, I think that people from the tri-state area or from Jersey actually can can identify with this. A lot of school trips when they brought kids from Jersey into Manhattan, especially going to the Museum of Natural History, you would have to go through the Holland Tunnel and to be a seven-year-old, eight-year-old, just glued just plastered up against the window of your bus going, looking at marquees that say like Marilyn Chambers, XXX, <laughs> you know, or like, or like, you know, Bruce Lee rises from the grave, you know, all these like either like sexploitation or just pure exploitation movies. And it was like, well, it was a welcome to the jungle moment every single time. Like it would be that like every kid would just be <laughs> plastered up against the windows. But anyway, so I did actually get to see New York in that era. By the time I went to NYU, though, it was at the tail, tail end. There was one, and I believe it was the lyric, but I might be wrong. There was one movie theater still open on 42nd Street, and it was showing The Mutilator. But all all the other ones were shut down by the time I got there. What happens in high school? Because I don't think I've actually ever asked you about this. What happens when you're a teenager there? I think everyone tries to find the thing that makes sense to them. Mm. Like some people do sports, some people are writing, they do drama. Yeah. I don't actually, even though I've known you for a couple of years, I don't know what happened to you in high school. What were you doing? Well, I went to a a small prep school and our class was tiny, like tiny, under 35 people, 35 kids. And because of that, 
we had all the basic cliques that almost every other high school has, but they were like two people each. So you had two metalheads, you had two preps, you had two <laughs> mean girls, you had two, you know, that, that sort of thing. And I think I was just, well, for me, I didn't, I went through puberty like incredibly late, like to the point where my parents were scared and getting the tests and everything. Like oh, really? That. Yeah, yeah. So I went to, I went through puberty at 17. So you, so you, I was, you had not grown yet or it was... Uh, yeah, it was, I was tiny, number one. And number two, no hair under my arms and like, <laughs> and no real like <laughs> desire, knowing the desire was going to kick in and seeing high school girls and being attracted to, but not really. It was like, hmm, someday I'm going to be into these girls. Right. <laughs> it, was, it was weird. That's a strange transition. Yeah, and it, it sucked too. It really did because I was everybody's younger brother. <laughs> and that's why I never was like bullied or anything like that. I was just seen as uh, uh, the other. You know, I wasn't like even one of the cliques. I wasn't in one of the cliques because I, d I was everybody's weird younger brother who didn't go through puberty yet. So mm. they would see me as just a kid themselves. And so I don't think things didn't really even, I mean, I, I, I finally went through puberty and I was you know, the end of my junior year and I was, but it wasn't, it was, it was college that really felt like I was finally amongst, you know, equals, I guess you could say. What do you mean by everyone's younger brother? Like what, what was the treatment? Well, it was more like a pat on the back. It was never any sort of like, you know. <laughs> was, it, was it ever like, oh, come hang out with us? Or they said, no, sorry. Not, not really. I mean, I eventually worked my way in. There was this one you know, a group of guys that, uh, you know, we would go to the diner all the time. And that was like, I think I had to ask them one time, like, what's going on? Can I join you guys one time and uh, sometime? And they're like, yeah, of course. I mean, yeah, we just thought you weren't interested or something. So <laughs> that happened like the end of junior year. Uh, but anyway, uh, but I was also really into, you know, I knew I was heading, I wanted to head to, to film school. So I was, you know, that guy, the AV dude. Uh, you know, I, I edited the video yearbooks. I mm -hmm. I was the guy shooting video all the time, which obviously isn't the most. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't put you in like the the, the cool crowd, right? Um, but people so, understood that's what you wanted to do. A hundred percent, yeah. I, I, like the school was cool enough. Gil St. Bernard's, by the way, they're in uh, Gladstone, New Jersey. They were cool enough about allowing me to even show my short films in front of the assemblies, you know, in, 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 in the mornings, you know, that would never happen in a, you know, bigger high school. But the student body at that time was literally like a couple hundred kids. Mm -hmm. So you could just, yeah. What, what were the responses? Well, that's the thing. My, they always like were very supportive. Like the actual school was so supportive and 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 people just like the fact that somebody was making stuff but my stuff as you as you can see from my features there's always a little bit of a an edge to it or like you know i like the uh, mischievous drama you know yeah, you can yeah, see yeah. that in my films and i think i was doing that even in my high school stuff <laughs> so it all of a sudden be like they would be watching a like uh we made this film about you know cannibalism in high school. And of course we were just slammed. The whole idea was just to basically slam how bad the meat was at our high school cafeteria. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like this subversive film that was basically just slamming our horrible food that we were given. And yet, so they had to sort of just like the administration just sort of had to like 
sit back and smile and be yeah. like, yeah. I mean, okay, how great of them for them, them, for them to yeah, let yeah. you do that in front of 200 people. Well, I have people. to tell you, it was a very progressive high school. Mm. Um, the administration basically were mostly baby boomers. Probably a lot went to Woodstock. I mean, I was in a very liberal, left-leaning high school. We actually had my professor in my social studies I don't even remember. It wasn't called social studies. We actually had like very almost college. Our, our, our courses were actually very, they were almost named like college courses. I think we had a uh, one semester that focused on upheaval in the in Central America and talking about Nicaragua at the time. And uh, our professor actually had, from what I remember, refugees from Nicaragua staying in his basement illegally what? And we would actually go to his house and interview them. This is high school. This is so. This was, is, yeah, don't say this is high school. Like this is a normal high no, school no, for it, most it, people. Yeah, yeah. Most most people most people are like, oh, I have to go to gym class. Yeah, yeah. Not, I have to go see my right. Well, we also, you know, we had those obligations, and basically, I was <laughs> okay. This is this will kind of show you what I had to deal with. Okay, my high school. We had a decent sports teams, but we really only had any sort of mark in our soccer teams, right? None of the other teams mattered in any way, shape, or form. But for some reason or another, when I was there, the wrestling team kicked in. I don't know. Mm-hmm. They, they got a new coach and they said, we're, we're, we're bringing back wrestling to go St. Bernard's, right? And this is right in that era. Like at, This is right after Vision Quest, and by the way, I just met Harold uh, Harold Becker the other day at a party, 89-year-old mm. uh, director of Vision Quest. Right. And I said, you fucked me. I didn't say this, but I wanted to be like, because of you, I was tortured for two years because it was like in the 80s, uh, you know, wrestling all of a sudden got cool because of something mm-hmm. like, like a movie like Vision Quest. So this is 87, 88? Yeah, yeah. And um, <laughs> so they needed somebody to fill that, that 101 weight class, which is the one weight class in high school, which almost always wins by default because there'll only be one high school won't have somebody for that slot and another one will. So anyway, they, they actually came and recruited me. Mm. Like I was so anti-sports because, you know, they say it's, it's, uh, if you're into sports, it's because your father introduced you to sports. My father was never into sports. So mm. we never went to games. I've never been to one baseball game in my life. That's astonishing. I know. And it really sucks. I should go. I live here in LA. We yeah. should, I should go to Dodger stadium. And what does your father do? He's a uh, patent trademark lawyer. So anyway, um, he just was never into sports. He was into swimming. I mean, he was, he worked out, he kept healthy, but he was not by into the way, team. Like that's like the least group team activity ever. <laughs> that is the most isolated. Son, do you want to go swimming? We won't talk to each other the whole time, but we yeah. will swim. Yeah. Yeah. When it comes, yeah, swimming is actually the most isolating sport, I think. Yeah. It's just an individual solo thing. It's not like even golf, you're with somebody. Yeah. You know, you're literally yeah. underwater yeah. by yourself. <laughs> So, so anyway, so, um, yeah, so they recruit me, they go, you're 99 pounds. We need you for the one Oh one. Yeah. You're going to come out. You're you're, great. So every time I, but the, the the sucky thing is that I had to go to practice every day. Mm -hmm. So for an hour and a half to almost two hours after school, I had to roll around the mats and I was hating life. It was horrible. Now, wait a second. Are they making you do this? Well, yeah, it's because if you don't, then you have to do gym class or something like that. But I think it was also like a real request. They're like, we need you for this. Normally I would just say, I'll take the, you know, the hour long 
gym mm-hmm. class, but you felt obligated. Uh, I guess so. I was being nice, but anyway, so I would show up and ba- at these matches, and I would watch my, you know, my 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 friends, my my fellow team members like starving themselves for like days, like starving themselves. So they would just get down to to that place and then they would weigh in and they would, they would make it and they would run back to their locker and they would just start downing sugar, like just popping hostess cupcakes and downing Coca-Colas before the the match. So unhealthy. Right. And I would just sit there being like, yeah, I haven't, uh, I I haven't been, I'm 99 pounds. I'm not going to be, there's no danger of me hitting 103 or 102. I'm I'm, staying here. Yeah. I'm staying here. So anyway, uh, so every time I would go out, I would be the first one because it would go up in weight. So the 101 class would would come out and the, and the the coach would just, uh, I'm sorry, the referee would just raise my right hand up and I'd be like yeah and then I won so I had a great streak up to the one time I actually did have to wrestle somebody and I think I did win out of just points I guess because the referee is just watching moves and giving you points but I just I think it looked like just two guys rolling around a mat with no no form I think you both were like the winning by default yeah 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 so I won that one and I was actually really proud and then the next time I actually two times in that first season I actually had to uh to wrestle and the second time I was in that you know they do the 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 coin toss to tell you whether you're going to be on top and bottom top Mm -hmm. or bottom and so I was on bottom and the guy is behind me his right hand is wrapped under my stomach and he's holding my left and the whistle blows and this kid's face goes right down into my shoulder and he had braces oh. and the braces just started cutting up my arm and i'm like oh, get, i'm i'm good and i roll over right on my back <laughs> i give up yeah <laughs> that feels like i was like i'm not fighting why yeah, am i fighting for this i'm no. not like into my like rah rah team you go go st bernard's no fuck no i've been doing <laughs> you guys a favor there's no rules about yeah. braces I yeah think, yeah in wrestling but probably they should be wearing some sort of teeth guard mouth guard, or mouth guard yeah or something, yeah, yeah. But I, that's that not something not i know case. anything about yeah this is the 80s you could get away <laughs> so anyway. you want to be a filmmaker so then i go to nyu and that was uh yeah early admission i applied to ucla usc and boston as -hmm. well but i did early admission nyu NYU. and so so your dad is a patent lawyer yeah or or how uh, i think i got a lecture just recently and i should have listened yeah but i think he heard me on another podcast say that he's a patent trademark lawyer and actually he likes to say it's intellectual property attorney or something how mm. does he want me to word it well, i'm, sure I'm, I'm looking to i'm, I'm looking sure he's to gonna love thing. this he's gonna love hearing <laughs> my son stumbling um, for my job title intellectual property what i don't know whatever he's an attorney he does something yes and what about your mother uh she was a <laughs> got a lecture about this one too i'm not supposed to say pre-k teacher she was a oh damn Early development, whatever. I love how you guys are a <laughs> couple, and you guys have no idea. No, no. Well, she's, I know what they do, but did. they've liked to change the terms over the years. Okay, she so a she's a pre-K teacher. She's a pre-K pre-kindergarten teacher. teacher. Right, right, right. She's going to give you. But shit now for it's this. called it's like early development something something. Uh huh. So they were fine with you being a filmmaker. It seems yes, slightly which is incredible actually. Left of center for them, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. Neither one of them artists, but 
I have to say, and this has become more apparent even in the last few years because I've noticed how incredibly supportive they were. I mean, they never, because they've been supportive even in the last 20 years mm -hmm. after after NYU where it's, there've been so many ups and downs. So they never told me, you know, maybe you should like, you know, think about. They backed you. Yeah. Did they help you with college? Yes, I did have a, a scholarship that helped as well, but yeah, uh, yes. So they were full, they were all full in on, on, yeah, on you and yeah. you doing stuff. Yeah. I think there are people who have two kinds, I think there are two kinds of parents. It's either the ones who are like, please don't. Yes. Or they're so overjoyed that they write a bunch of things on mm. their kids' Facebook walls. Yeah. And I don't know where your parents land on that, but probably more to the latter. Yeah. I think that if Facebook was around at that time, maybe. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, just very supportive. And it was actually my mother who introduced me to film. You know, she was the one who brought me to the local library in Milburn, New Jersey, actually, where they were showing 16 millimeter clips from, and I think it was 16 millimeter. I was six years old, but I'm thinking back, There's it couldn't have been video. And I don't think it was Super 8 because I remember it being projected on a big screen. And they were showing clips from uh, the Universal Monster films. So mm. all the all the iconic scenes. So you had Dracula rising from the grave. You had the creature from the Black Lagoon. You had the, this famous scene with the mummy getting stabbed and with the spear. And then the famous windmill burning sequence at the end of James Whale's Frankenstein. And that was literally the moment where I said, I want to make movies. I, and I even remember seeing Karloff's face in the, you know, internal mechanism of the, uh, of the windmill. And I'm just like, that was the moment. <laughs> yeah, that's weird. It's, it's insane that you have such a vivid memory of, mm. was that something you thought about or is that something since you've been asked about it in interviews so often mm. you've had to come up with a reason? No, it's, it's been pretty much like that's, that was that moment, and the next day I said I wanted to make films, and so I haven't forgotten that. That's pretty incredible. Yeah. So what happens at NYU? Is it, is it mm. uh, good to be away from home? Uh, yeah, of course, yes. I Even though I lived only 40 minutes right. from my parents' place, I was ready. But that's there. enough of a distance that's to, enough to of a feel distance, like, yes. okay, I'm doing my own life now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And... Uh, I did live in the dorms all four years, which I know is a little crazy. Most people do a year or two, especially at in NYU, at NYU in Manhattan. By by the junior year, you you have your own apartment. But I was lucky enough to befriend some guys who I'm still working with, basically. Um, well, not working with, but we we've worked together through the years. And Chris Bragash came from that crowd. Oh, he did. Yeah, not. He was, I didn't room with him, but his, I roomed with his good friends and they had this, they were building up their lottery points for four years. So senior year, I meet them in September and no, I'm, I'm sorry. I meet them at the end of junior year for like five minutes and they're like, yeah, we're looking for our uh, fourth roommate. We have 1607 or whatever the best room is at Hayden, which overlooks the entire Washington Square Park. I mean, it is an incredible, it's like basically a penthouse <laughs> that exists at this dormitory oh, that uh, that basically you need, you know, lottery points to get you to that place. Mm. But those guys are all great. You know, Matthew Huffman, uh, who is a full-time screenwriter now, he, he directs as well, but uh, he was my roommate at the time. And 
they introduced me to Spencer Chenoy. Spen- oh, no, he was, Spencer Chenoy lived there as well. And Spencer is one of the creators of Greg the Bunny. We created Greg the Bunny together. So they introduced me to Chris Bergash, et cetera, mm. et cetera. So it was, a, it was a good group of people. And we would just, Laser Disc was just kicking in and they had a big Laser Disc uh, entertainment se- center in, the, in their room. And we would be studying our, that's where we listened to a lot of commentaries. We were all, we get laser discs and we'd rent them. You could rent them at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it became like this really cinema f- intense. They were very mainstream, those guys. I mean, I don't mean to be, you know. <laughs> but so there was one night where Spencer and I are like, why are you guys watching Radio Flyer? What the fuck is going on? <laughs> Radio Flyer? No, we, this is not okay. This is not okay. That was the breaking point. Radio Flyer. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Though people have said that we have, and I, I, I never even made it through Radio Flyer, I don't think. But uh, I, Listen, I love Richard Donner. He's awesome, but <laughs> not for Radio Flyer. But anyway, is this bad? This is terrible, isn't no, it? No, it's fine. Okay. Just <laughs> if Richard Donner or anybody associated with him is listening to this, I love you. It's just that. <laughs> this is an honest account of that moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We've all had um, that. But, um, but anyway, so, uh, but people say there's the, the ending of Florida. It has a radio flyer thing going on, which, ooh, I don't, now I'm going to have to go and actually watch the end of Radio Flyer. I haven't seen it. Yeah. Yeah. Let me ask you, in, in college, you're studying film studies, right? Uh, no, film production. I wish I had more cinema studies courses. I actually did not have as many as I would like. Mm-hmm. What is a highlight in those four years of going to school where you thought, I knew I always wanted to make movies, but mm. this is me doing it in a way that felt good. Oh, well, I made a a sight and sound film. Sight and sound is sophomore year where you're just shooting on basically black and white MOS 16 millimeter and then creating sound for it after fa- after the fact. And then, you know, they're, they're not big films. They're not your junior or senior thesis films, but they're, you make five of them, I believe, four or five per semester and uh those were those felt good to me those were like i i felt i did a good job and they were they showed during the you know the the sight and sound festival and i felt like it was getting some attention i didn't with what <laughs> junior year i made a film called lights out mm-hmm. and it was about three guys now imagine this okay three guys in a motel room some crime just went down, some, some theft or some uh, heist, some heist that went wrong. Three guys, they're all arguing. They all end up killing each other off. <laughs> okay? Hello, what does that sound like? What does that sound exactly like? Uh, Reservoir Dogs. Yeah, yeah. And Reservoir Dogs came out that year after I made this. Oh. Now, to be fair... This was a Reservoir Dogs minus all of the incredible witty dialogue. This is just three guys swearing at each other and then shooting each other in a sort of like a, I don't remember. It wasn't exactly like a Mexican standoff right. thing. But so this it was, is 92? Yeah. So I didn't even really, comp- I completed the film, but I completed the film like a year later without, and not even, and I didn't even tell him. So he probably didn't it. see it. Oh, no, no, God, nobody saw it. But I mean, it was actually like, it was, if I had shown anybody, they would just say, oh, well, you just ripped off Reservoir Dogs, that mm-hmm. big, the huge indie from this year. And uh, and it's not even nearly as funny or witty or, you know what I mean? 
So that was a film called Lights Out that I just, I kind of let die. And because I was so into post-production on that, I didn't make a senior film. I produced one. And unfortunately, that film was never completed, which uh, is sad because we finished the shooting of it, but mm. it was never posted. Why? I think the director wasn't, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I really don't. It's one of those. That, that happens a lot. You know, that really does happen a lot. I mean, a lot of, um, you, there's so much energy and passion and your whole, you know, just everything, your whole being goes into making these films. And sometimes it kills you. I mean, it's just, you're just like, there's almost fear. Like if I cut this thing together and it's not good, what has the last year meant? You know? Right. So there are a lot of senior films that I think aren't completed and a lot of sometimes even features that aren't uh, seen all the way through to fruition. And that's what happened with this one. And it wasn't my film, so I didn't really have control over it. Did you feel like you had a mentor back then? You know, I... I don't know if I, I don't think I did. No, I didn't. You were working in isolation. I was. And, and I was drawn to the editing rooms. I mean, that's where I was. That's why I'm still, I think, that's why I will never not edit my own stuff because I, that's where I really, uh, I've spent so much time in those edit rooms. And I can tell, I can say this now 25 years later, but we actually like probably broke the law by, <laughs> <laughs> by hiding out behind Steambecks and they would come around and open the, and sometimes we were editing on three quarter inch machines as well, umatic machines. So we would be actually hiding behind the equipment and the people would come in and clean up and lock up for the night. And the security guard would come by and do, you know, and, and just look and see if anybody was, if everybody was cleared out. And then when we would wait about 15 minutes and then we would turn the lights on and come out from behind the equipment and then work the whole night till like 6 a.m. And then try to sneak out of there before anybody saw. Did anyone ever see? Nope. We got away with it. We got away with it. And we did that a lot. And it was like this, we were breaking the law just for our, like, for our art. It was kind of crazy. I mean, that has to be exciting. We would have, yes. The heart rate was through the roof. <laughs> I mean, the adrenaline, I still, you know, I, we, your body was full of adrenaline, especially when you're hiding behind equipment and a security guard walks into the room. <laughs> you're like, what if... What do you do if you're caught? Like, what do you do in this moment? And I we think, never, yeah. I think it's kind of a sweet thing. I yeah. actually, I think if a cop did catch you, they'd be like, what? What are you doing? And you're going to be like, I'm making this movie. And they're yeah, like, what but, you? but a, a year or two later, somebody was caught doing it and mm. they were actually considering uh, having him. Um, yeah, kicked out of school. Yeah, kicked out of school. Really? They took and, that maybe even brought up on like trespassing charges and stuff. Mm. It was like a real thing. So I was like, I got away with a lot, but I would do this just so I could have the extra time editing. And I remember they called it the cage and there was a, that's where you would, you would, you would uh, show up in the mornings and get on a waiting list if you didn't have a reservation already. And there were a limited number of rooms and to get into that steam back room or into that pneumatic room was just like a, it's a battle. I remember mm. seeing fights. I remember people having, uh, you know, people fighting about their movies. fights. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you leave college and then uh that's 93 you graduate yes and i was really lucky very 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 lucky because i landed a job just because it was like through it was a friend of the family or something like that somebody heard i went to film school and there was this you know a friend of a friend of a friend they were looking for to fill a um in a small publishing company by the name of 
multimedia, multimedia something. And it's such a generic, generic name, but this was at the time when multimedia was actually becoming a thing. Like the internet was just kicking in, CD-ROMs were a thing, and it was a publishing company putting out these uh, terrible books, terrible, terrible, terrible books. Um, their, their biggest title was Robert McFarland's memoirs. He was, he was Reagan's um, uh, head of security. Uh, um, no idea. Yeah, Robert McFarlane. He was he was definitely a big part of the Iran Contra. He had a memoir. Uh, yes. So you and, got a job straight out of school. Uh, yeah. Well, pretty much right out of school. Yeah. Mm. By the end of that first that summer. But anyway, uh, he uh, I I got to do some pretty interesting things with that one because I had to. They were actually trying to put out a CD-ROM with that book, mm. so they sent me out to Simi Valley for two weeks to to just hang out in the Reagan Library up there. Have you been there? No. You should go. It's actually kind of, kind of unique. Is that interesting? Yeah, yeah. And but they they had me in the archives, and I got to go through all this footage of 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 watching Reagan in the White House, mm. and it was pretty incredible because I was shown footage that they said I could never allow to be released because it was Reagan after the shooting, the assassination attempt, and he was on painkillers and everything. So this was him having conversations with like Robert McFarlane and others on where he's doped up. Yeah. Not, you know, I don't want to be, I don't want to be killed by the U S government here. Please don't come after <laughs> me. It wasn't dope. He was definitely under the influence of something. Right. And you know, you can't blame the guy. He had just been shot. No, so, you know, but they did, they, they, they basically told me, yeah, this footage will never leave this room. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, so, but uh, try hanging out in Simi Valley for two weeks. <laughs> yeah, that's such an interesting education. Though. Oh, it was at the time when there were actually LA vampires. Remember? Do you remember no. this? Remember like uh, Tom Petty, all the vampires. Oh, okay. nah, nah, yeah, nah. sure. This is when it was like, they actually had a very unique look. It was like, I believe, and I, I hope Angelinos aren't going to kill me on this one, but I think it's, I think they were like the Angelino goths uh-huh. and they, they, they had makeup. They looked like the lost boys, you know, they hung out and this was a scene and Simi Valley had their own vampire scene. Mm. And at night it was like, yeah, some nights we would travel the 45 minutes into LA and do downtown and stuff. My friend and I, we were, we were on this trip together. And then other times you just hang out in Simi Valley and go to the, like the local vampire uh, lounge where they couldn't serve alcohol because most of the kids were underage, but it was just like hanging out and smoking and drinking soda and playing, uh, you know, some card games with, with, with LA vampires. Mm. <laughs> it's an interesting post-college job. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Getting back to that. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was cool because they actually put me in, t- in charge of all their AV stuff. Mm. That was what I was doing there. Yeah. So I got to make a commercial for them and I got to shoot it on 60 millimeter. It seemed like people yeah. keep trusting you with, with running. They did that in high school. They do this out of college. <laughs> do you think there's something about your personality that, that draws people to want to work with you? I I think that I come across looking uh, uh, innocent, or at yes. least I did for a long time. I think that's right. I have a a gentle face, perhaps. Very gentle. <laughs> it's such a so lie. So basically, it's I've gotten lie, away though. with so much shit. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I think that's uh, part true. I think that's part. I'm sure you have gotten away with shit. Well, I just remember one of those trips. Going back, this is the first time this where where I ever realized that like somebody of authority 
caught on to this. I was at taking one of these trips into New York City with my high school class. And for some reason, I don't know why I did this, but I just wanted to like jump the turnstile at the subway just mm-hmm. to show I could. Because I think my father showed me that th- this was in the 70s and 80s when people actually did that. If you didn't have a dollar, you would jump and you wouldn't get arrested. Sure. So I think my father showed it to me. And then I actually jumped the turnstile in front of and and my teacher my high school teacher goes you know what i figured it you out i figured <laughs> you out you come across so innocent and this and that but you're the one jumping the freaking turnstile <laughs> yeah anyway i think there is something to that though you have um a face and quality and i i thought that when i first met you and i still think it that makes me think like oh like, you know who would love Sean? Like, my grandmother would love Sean. <laughs> my grandmother would think, oh, he's such a sweet boy. I, okay, I have a story for you then, okay? Good. Okay. So one of my producer from on Tangerine, and he's been, that's my, my producer on Prince of Broadway, uh, Darren Dean. Uh, we met at a research company. It was literally, we were living workaholics, okay? Mm-hmm. This was a low point in my life where I... <laughs> wasn't even like sticking to my rule, which was always, even if you're not, you always work in the industry somehow, even if it's on the far, far, far fringes. Mm -hmm. If you're editing wedding videos, you're still in the industry practicing your art. This is where my life went so out of control that I was actually working at a research company, calling people and doing surveys. What year is this? Late 97 going into 98. Mm -hmm. Yeah, around then, I think. So your life is in a weird middle ground. 98, maybe 99, but in, I think it was 98. So yeah, oh no, it was a low point in my life, definitely. And and so anyway, I, I uh, took a temp job and I was at, it was at this company where you have to call, this was back when you could do this. This is when, you know, you, you could actually get away with this stuff, but you could call, um, they would give you lists. They would, I'm sorry, they would give you lists and you would just call people and just ask if they would do a survey. And for some reason or another, I really connected with elderly women. <laughs> like yeah. they loved my voice. I don't know why they love talking to me. So I was getting so many surveys. They actually said, we want to ship you out to the New Jersey facility and we're going to pay you you know, $15 an hour, which was a lot for that time for me mm-hmm. just to talk, you know, just, they were, I was like, and they, and we'll pay for your transportation. And I was like, okay, sure. Because they said that I was connecting with older women. So yeah. then suddenly I was the guy doing all the elderly women surveys. Mm. They love talking to me. Yeah. I don't know. They love talking to me. So do you get lost in, <laughs> in actually wanting to make movies at this point? Well, I was actually, um, I was in post-production on Four Letter Words, and Four Letter Words was not in a good place. My life wasn't in a good place. You know, I was into hard drugs and stuff, and my life was definitely not on track. And not only was Four Letter Words, it seemed like a failure to me because I I didn't, I hadn't figured out the way to edit it yet. I, I wrote it like a Rashomon sort of mystery train thing mm-hmm. where it was three stories and it only covered the same 15 or the same 20 minutes three times. It wasn't until almost four years later that I discovered that it shouldn't have been written that way. And I re-edited the film into a linear style and that's when it went to South by Southwest. Mm -hmm. But between 96 and 2000, my life was not, it was like out of control. We did start Greg the Bunny in that time, but it wasn't 
a healthy time for me, you know, but I was at Russell Research pre-Greg the Bunny. And when I was there, it was like, I was just having a blast. I mean, it was having a blast. I was, it was like workaholics. It was like, the sh- it was like basically, all, oh yeah. And I was, I was older than I should have been. <laughs> I was like, like 26-ish or something like that. 27 maybe. So anyway, it was a, it was a fun time. And that's where I met Darren Dean. Years later, we ended up working together on Prince of Broadway. Mm. South by, I saw you tweet the other day. Yes. That it in some way saved your life. Yeah, well, I mean, it was definitely, I was really at a low point because I wasn't on Greg the Bunny for the year that it went to Fox mm-hmm. because my life was so out of control. And so suddenly that was taking off. And I was, I was in this place where I was just sitting by myself in New York and I, I was, I was clean and I was getting my life back on track. Actually, I had met Xi Ching, Xi Ching Zhou, who I co-directed Takeout with. We were, we met at the new school. We, we were, uh, you know, I, I think that's at the new school that I re-edited Four Letter Words to a place where, where, you know, where it was good enough to go to South by. But when I got that acceptance letter, I was like, holy shit, finally, like really South by, I mean, like I didn't even think I would get this film past like the local, local, you know, tiny, tiny little film festival, if that, mm-hmm. and suddenly South by wanted me. And I was like, all right, now that is it, maybe that's the validation thing that you were asking about earlier, yeah. but it came all those years later right? <laughs> because when it was like, I'm actually, wow, this is actually now I'm playing in the realm I want to play in. Mm. And it's incredible. It took four years, but somebody is actually championing my film. And it's actually Matt Dentler. Matt Dentler was running South by at the time. And uh, now he's at iTunes, you know, and he's incredible. Great guy who has been so supportive of filmmakers in the, uh, a lot, many from my generation and, you know, in the mumblecore generation. Actually, he's the one who, isn't it? He's the one who coined the phrase. Was it him? Yeah. That's what I've heard. I don't remember that yeah. anymore. Yeah. So that he, phrase has come and gone. Very <laughs> yes, but he was the one who brought my four letter words is very much a mumblecore movie. You think so? Yeah. It's not, it doesn't have a lot of the tropes of like the, the French new wave that you see so much of in, you know, Swanberg and Duplass's stuff and, 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 and others. But, but it, I think if you analyze it, it, it's a bunch of, you know, guys talking in the suburbs, and I and I do feel it has mumblecore qualities. But, mm. but anyway, that being said, uh, yeah, South by was a very nice validation. Yeah, you know, the the, the thing is, for most people making movies, mm. the success does not come right away. Mm. And I've I, the one thing about the show that I love is that I've had these opportunities that to pinpoint a moment, and South by is the thing that like got you to move forward. Yeah. Is there a moment before that, and I don't care about the details of the all that, that doesn't matter. Yeah, a moment where you think, like, I guess I want to know. The basic question is, how do you not quit? Yeah, I know it's sort of a blind faith thing, and maybe, maybe also just a ignorance. <laughs> Or an arrogance, you know, just being like, yeah, I'm going to make it even though I haven't proven myself whatsoever. Mm. I have good taste. <laughs> That's enough. <laughs> I like good movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and I always felt that even my, the, the, even the stuff that I did that were like little music videos I was shooting for friends or like, you know, the stuff, the Greg the Bunny stuff, I was proud of 
you know, I always said, I think I have the talent. I just have to figure out how to, uh, to get it out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When's the first feature film you made mm. that you really liked? Well, I think that it's takeout, you know, definitely, you know, even it's four letter words is a hard one to swallow because it's, 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 uh, I was so young when I wrote it and I hadn't really experienced any life yet. I had no life experience. And, uh, and I, I don't know, it was also flat in terms, I was going for something very jarmushy, I guess you could say, and these long takes and, but I wasn't skilled enough. I wasn't, I wasn't, I didn't have a, a handle on framing. It's though, you know, Sam Selva, who, who DP'd the film, he did a wonderful job. He shot on 35, but I just, I don't know. I just, uh, it has to be takeout because takeout was the one where I really was proud of. And, and, and to tell you the truth, we, 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 we believed in it so much so that we, we stuck with it and we demanded that it get, uh, distributed. And when it did, and then Kino, you know, Cabu Pictures put it out and Kino Lorber picked it up. That was even more of a validation in the spirit noms and stuff. So, uh, yeah, take out. Mm. Uh, after Prince of Broadway, which I think is 2008, mm. you moved from New York to Los Angeles? No, it took a few years, uh, two years later. Two years later, I was working on that last and final incarnation of Greg the Bunny, which was a spinoff called Warren the Ape. Mm. which is actually has some great episodes, but it was on one season on MTV and it was the season in which it was season two for Jersey Shore. And it was like the biggest ratings, the highest ratings they've ever had. They were like bringing in 5 million or something per night. And we were getting like nothing. I mean, we were getting like, we were a blip, a hundred thousand or something crazy like that. There's five, it's 5 million, right? That's like a, like a good I think I don't I mean I I remember yeah. that show but I, I don't yeah. remember that show. Anyway, I always say that Snooky outshined us Snooki. because by I remember Snooky. Yeah, but because Jersey by, D, I got Mike to meet D? her. Yeah, and the situation. Situation, that's what yeah. it is. We would go to parties because we were actually like doing the whole upfronts and doing the parties at that time. All the MTV parties. And we'd just be sitting in the corner watching everybody across the room just being on top of the Jersey Shore, just kissing their ass, just being like, you guys are amazing. We're like, we're getting no attention. <laughs> Did you want what is going there? on? Well, just in terms of like, just not attention, just like acknowledgement that we actually had a show on the, on the air right? on the air as well. No, but I actually got to work. Look, at, for me, it was great. It got me out to L.A. It changed my social circles. I actually got to know a lot of people in comedy, which is great because a lot of our producers came from comedy shows. And and then on, not, not only that, I got to direct Judy Greer, Billy Crudup. I got to direct, uh, and uh, you know, uh, who else? I, I, I There were some great names, some of the UCB guys. And it was just, uh, you know, a lot of freedom. And yeah, but it was over very quickly, but I had fallen in love in, with LA in that time, mm. in like that, that season. The falling in love is, is Starlet, it seems. Yeah, because I went back, I knew we were, we, Chris and I then, we were on the set of Warren the Ape when we decided, we were actually at that, that strip joint on La Brea. I haven't been to it. Girls, girls, girls. Oh, right, that one. Yeah. Um, girls, girls, girls. Yeah, right. I think it's called Girls, Girls, Girls. Yeah. yeah. It's right on, uh, on La Brea and Sunset right below sunset 
And uh, I always see that sign. I'm like, oh, I should go. <laughs> no, don't go. Because you know what? It's a bikini bar. Oh. Because in LA, they can't serve alcohol with nudity. Oh, really? So they just you're just watching, you know, girls roll around on stage in bikinis. It's LA the most ridiculous thing. LA thinks that's a bad combo. <laughs> no, it is really ridiculous because you can go to Venice Beach and see the same exact thing. Oh, really? You know, well, yeah, I mean. I haven't. No, we got on the beach, you know. Oh, there's oh, girls right. in bikinis. I mean, right? on the beach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's just a weird thing for me that people pay money to do that. And anyway, so, uh, yeah, but we were there. And I remember it was the day that we were there that Chris and I, I think, start t- started talking about Starlet because we had some adult film stars there as making cameos on the, uh, for that episode. And uh, that was when we came up with the idea. Now, the season, you know, we got canceled. I ended up having to move back to New York, but knowing that I would eventually come back to LA. And in the, in the time that I was in New York, that winter of 2011 is when, when I wrote Starlet and, you know, I wrote it there. Chris wrote it on the West coast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Came to be. Yes. That's a film that people in the film industry saw. Yeah. And some other people saw, but I think the thing that's the introduction for most is Tangerine. Yeah, I think so. And, um, I remember when that, Played at Sundance. I mean, it really. I don't know if there's been a bigger deal of a movie in like the last few years. I, really? I I'm trying to think about it. I thought that maybe there is. There have. Been, I'm I sure think. there's something. It was an obvious child like a biggie. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't want to go into that, but I, I think um, Tangerine. I mean, the whole. And I know you hate this fucking conversation, yeah, so yeah. We, we'll move on from it. But right. The the fact that it was shot on the iPhone um, did, I think it got you a lot of press. I mean, it totally did. Yeah, because actually it was, what's that, what's that tech website? Like the big tech website. Wired, The was Verge. It, it was, I think it was either. Wired one of those The Verge, two, Gizmodo, They had Gizmodo. a, uh, and forgive me to whoever it was, I'm sorry. It's been a long couple of weeks, but you guys helped me out a lot because it was the, it, we got we reached such a large audience. I mean, there were people who don't care anything about film or cinema. <laughs> find you know knowing about, that a movie was being shot on the iPhone out there because mm. it went on this one. It was a it was a you know a feature article on this tech website that's followed by millions. Mm-hmm. So um, so that was great. Yeah. But we didn't honestly. We we were very concerned about it becoming a you know, in any way a stunt because it wasn't, it wasn't a stunt. It right. was, it, and, uh, but, but also it's a stunt only if you do not actually watch the movie. Cause if you watch mm. 30 seconds of it, you're like, Oh, okay. Mm. There's a vision here behind. It's not just cause it's shot on an iPhone. Right, 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 right. Thinking back on it now, I know you've moved on to the next film, but yeah. looking at it in 2017, it dropped in 2015, right? Yep. Why do you think it worked so well? You know, I don't, I, you mean why? Audiences... Why do you think, it, well, no, no, audiences forget that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like, why do you think the story works as well as, as it does? If you think, I mean, I think it works well. You know, I, I think it was just, uh, well, first off, the subject matter itself was in the zeitgeist at the time. And, uh, oh, but you just told me not to, no, we're not talking about people's reactions. You can do both. About... I guess I want more, like, when you look at it now. Well, I think, I have to say that there was an air of desperation in the making of the film. 
you know, Starlet, I thought was going to open a lot more doors. And I thought we were actually going to be able to shoot either the Florida project or this other film that had to do with the Russian mob in Brighton beach. And both of them required more money Mm -hmm. and we couldn't get financing. And so I was, when I turned to Mark and Jay and said, Hey, I guess I'm ready to make another micro budget. This is going to suck, but let's do it because I have no other choice. I think that it was like a full on, like if I don't make an impression with this film, I never said to myself it's over, but it felt like I better make an impression with this right. film or or else. And then I think that we just, but the part of that was also not caring. It was also just about being as like, we're just going to go all out and just have a fun time making this movie and and also, you know, just, just take risks, I think. Not even, not even huge risks, but just being like, we're going to get. Do the thing that you want to do. Yeah. Is there a part of you on each of these films mm. in the 2000s where you're like, this could be my last feature? Oh, Jesus. No, but, well, <laughs> God. Uh, no, I don't think so. I don't think I ever had that. I never felt. I mean, I was, I remember, and my agent will always laugh about this. She told me that I called her after Tangerine saying, this is going to kill my career. This is, you know people are going to have, there's going to be a major backlash here. Samantha and, just did a head nod. Yeah. The and then I think I did this. it again with Florida, but I always do that because at the <laughs> end of the, at the very end of the post process or when you're close to the end of it, you lose faith. I, I always have you all of a sudden are questioning the whole thing. You're just being like, is this even good? Or am I just, I think that's I your just, response. I, I, yeah. we had coffee before Florida project in Toronto and you're like, I think it's, I, I'm done. I think that's it, Sam. And I was like, I don't think that's going to happen. I think it's going to be fine. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There is like the whole doom and gloom thing. Uh, Yeah, yeah. But that's usually just before it premieres. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Just because it could, like, I have seen, you know, I have seen films released, knowing the filmmakers, knowing how much they believed in their own films and how nothing could go wrong, and then it just being absolutely panned by everybody. And so you realize that you're never, you can never be objective. You're always subjective. You have no idea how audiences really react. You try to remove yourself as much as possible, and you do things to help help you get there, but yeah, and you never can completely trust the people around you either. Right. And I don't mean that in a negative way. No, I mean, but they're like, complicit if they're close in the making to you, of yes, it. If they're close to you, if they're your partner, they might be Well, just, they want it to be good exactly. too. People are always, there's always that optimistic thing that, uh, that sometimes falls into blind optimism, I think. I think it has to be. Yeah. Because if you don't have that, then yeah. how do you keep making movies? Right. Because some, and I, I sometimes fear that I'm going to lose. That's sometimes why Chris and I have, well, just in general, I have like rules for each film, like stuff I can, laws of the film that I can't break. Mm-hmm. Because I always fear that I will give in by the end of the post process. There are, so what were the laws for Florida Project? No music, no score. I said absolutely no score. What was, was there another one? Oh, maybe they would never show a shot from a book looking down on the kids. Maybe there was that. But it was more about a, that wasn't as important as I think what I'm talking about is like the editing 
style and how mm. it's going to be in the end. And I said, this one, because I had wall to wall music in Tangerine, I said, no way am I going to do this. Laws. Yeah. Well, Starlet was a definite one. Starlet was like, if I, if I will not make this movie, if we don't have the real sex scene in the film, because for me, it just felt like it would be so untruthful to do that and, to these and judgmental of it. Yeah. And, and judgmental of the actual act itself, if we didn't show it. And so that was that one. And then for Tangerine, it was, if we don't shoot in donut time, I'm not making the movie. That was like a, a definite. Um, yeah. Anyway, those are good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Florida project, the making of it was difficult. Oh. It's hard to shoot where you shot on location the film is inherently like you're capturing people in places that are things we don't see mm. in movies. My question is not about the characters you portray. I don't want to go into that. It's more of how are you getting through these sets? Because it's not like there's a lot of money. Mm. It's not like you have a lot of time and yeah. you pull these things off in a way that's like, God, I don't know how the fuck you do that. Well, that's nice to hear. But I, don't th- I actually don't think Florida... I think Florida had to do with a lot of outside forces and also not the best communication and me wanting things that I couldn't get simply because of union rules and stuff like that. So there were a lot of those things that could have been controlled. So Mm -hmm. ultimately though, I, I don't think that Florida was actually like an insane set at all. I mean, I think... I think that actually it was quite. I, I, I we we had one hour of one hour of overtime the entire shoot. We did not go over budget. We stayed within our contingency, and we uh, we pulled it off in thirty five days without any pickups. So actually, it's a very successful shoot in terms of producing. And you have to give the props to you know Kevin Shinoy and Shi uh, Ching Zhou. They did an amazing job. But in regards to just making it through. I think there's something that happens during a film shoot in which there's just adrenaline that is running for 35 days straight. Mm-hmm. And suddenly when you thought you couldn't live a day without a nap, you can go 18 hours straight without ever blinking. You know what I mean? Like it, it takes over in that time, something takes over. And actually I feel that your brain function is probably working at like quadruple the amount of you know, like literally it's it's processing when we were writing at night i had to process what we had shot in the day and looking forward to you know it was an insane time where and that's what that's the weird thing it's like as filmmakers we only have those 35 days like once every three years we're working intensively for yeah. for 35 or around that you know yeah. it depends on the life it's of almost your like shoot. an olympian yeah it's weird it's weird because it's not like we're practicing our livelihood on any given day, except those 35 days, you know? And so it's a weird thing to, to do. And, and I, and I feel that it's just, you're, you're just, you know that you have to get through that time and you just battle your way through it. Simple as that. And I, I do consider myself a responsible filmmaker. I mean, I never want to waste people's money. I never want to be like, I'll show up late on set just because I want to get a cop. You know, I know I, you know, I'm responsible, especially when it's not my money. So it's like, it's not fair. It wouldn't be fair unless I was, you know, really putting my 100% my all into it. So, oh, I, I will have to say though, you know what? 
my stomach was churning for literally those entire 35 days. And I would, and Sam would, I would ask Sam and she says, those your stomach acids. That's stress. That's stomach acids. And, and sometimes even in the quiet scenes in the, uh, in their room, my, my uh, location sound recordist would be like, Oh, there's Sean's stomach again. <laughs> yeah. So Holy it was cow. definitely like probably Were the you most eating? stressed. Yeah. But not an incredible amount. Right. I mean, we, we ate at night and yeah, I mean, I, you know, you, you tried to eat, you knew you had to eat to sustain and never get sick. That's the thing. You never want to get sick. I thank God I didn't get sick. Did I? No, I don't get, did I've I? never. You're asking, did you see that? That's how <laughs> deep in oh, the hole you are. Oh no, honestly, there are, there are stories that my wonderful assistant, Alex Coco, and sometimes Samantha Kwan will tell me and I will be like, wait, what? They're like, yeah, you don't remember you did that? And I'm like, no. I wish listeners I have, could see no, you. She's just shaking yeah, her head right well, now. Well, it'll be complete and utter blackouts. <laughs> and it, blackouts, if you think about it, that comes usually from trauma, right? Yeah. Some <laughs> sort of yeah. high on some end. Yeah. yeah. It was definitely, I think, traumatic blackouts from this shoot. Mm. Because I actually didn't think we would get through it. I didn't think we were going to... At first, I was like, holy shit, are we going to actually get shut down? This is not even a a bonded film and yet i think we might not make it this is like the first couple like three days really yeah and then was there a threat that's like you may not finish this thing yeah there was definitely a threat there's most definitely a threat because there was a lot of fear going on and but it was quickly worked out let's just say that but there were very hairy nights yeah Yeah. well you made it through yes the one thing about florida project that uh, we have not talked about but Mm -hmm. i want to ask you about People have had furious debates yes. over the ending of this film. Right. In a way that uh, I have not seen. I think it's kind of exciting, actually. Yeah, I do too. Because... People care about movies again. We yeah, were talking about yeah. that. I don't need you to explain the mm. ending, mm. but I do want to know what you make of the conversation around it. This was one thing in which I just did not see coming at all. I thought the, uh, I always think my films are going to be polarizing, but. And they usually, the last, they really haven't been that much. They've been warmly received for the most part. But that ending, I just thought would just, everyone would accept. I had no idea it was going to be so divisive. And on Twitter, oh my God, it's like, there are some people who really hate me for it and mm-hmm. say, you've ruined your film in the last 30 seconds. I've heard so, this. Yeah. And uh then, you know, I just, I, I, I like the ending. I totally stand by it. If I had questioned it in any way, then I would start to really get insecure about this. But there was this wonderful Twitter thread that I, I think I kept because it actually said what I wanted to say for a long time. This one guy tweeted, he's like, what, what do you want to see? Do you want to see Mooney in the back seat of the cop car just crying and it cutting to credits? Because that's the ending. If you, yeah, <laughs> you right. know, that's, 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 that's your end. If that's, that's the law is. and order ending that you all seem to want, <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> it just boggles my mind. You know, just, I think people were, were like, wow, you're changing formats. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But I, I think it makes sense. I'm on the, I think it works camp, mm, mm. but I will tell you, in my own household, roommates, <laughs> I was like, you guys got to see the Florida Project. Yeah. It's by the guy who made Tangerine. I think it's one of the best movies of the year. Yeah. They go and see it. They come home and they're like, look, I love this fucking movie, but the ending killed me. Two people said that. 
and one person was on my side. It was a, a split yeah. household. That's fine. That's great. I like that. I think it's I, good. Because it actually sparks discussion and and the people who are supportive of it really are supportive of it. And uh, hey, yeah. You got through it. Yeah. Um, Sean, I think the last thing I want to say is I'm anticipating and looking forward to uh, maybe a week or weekend where you two could uh, like not do this anymore. And just have a nice go back to your life for a second. Is that going to happen soon? Yeah, we hope so. I mean, After especially because, stuff? well, whatever happens in this, you know, the next few months, there definitely will be still, you know, campaigning and yeah. pushing the movie forward. But when that's done, it's not like I want to jump onto something right away. I want to actually, you know, let's just say um, that we might be getting a development the small a small development grant to just allow us to find what the next next subject will be Great. and that will be over the course of 2018 so it's nothing i don't want to jump into production in 2018 i would rather really just like develop figure out what the next the, the follow up to florida is because it's weird it's like i thought that the the follow up to tangerine was a lot of pressure but i think the follow up to this one seems to be more yeah. pressure so so I just want to take my time. No, I don't want to rush into it because I, I look at filmmaker, the filmmakers that I really like, I look at the, these model careers and they take time. Yeah. They take time. There's, you know, the Paul Thomas Anderson's, the Tarantino's, you know, even look at, you know, Kubrick. They're, these came every five years, you know, I don't want to push to five, but you know, mm-hmm. I, I, there should be some breathing. I just don't, I mean, the one thing I actually wanted to ask, yeah. Somerset, is where you ended up growing up. Somerville, yes. Somerville, Somerville. Somerset County, yes. When you were a kid and, and you were watching films at six, and then you started making them in high school as the AV guy, yeah. and you go to college, did you think at any point that you'd end up here? No, of course I didn't imagine this world because I didn't even know about like how independent film worked and you know and look what it's become it's 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 obviously evolved in so many ways but i think no i did have a real i did feel like i'm going to make a some big film someday and i was always you know as i approached the end of high school i was actually or you know i was actually thinking along the lines of like a die hard or robocop so i was always thinking that some people will see my films in in the multiplex in the theater. So I, I had that dream, but here in this sort of independent world realm and, um, no, not really. Sean Baker. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Special thanks to Shipra Gupta and Adam Kirsch for making this week's episode possible. In some theaters around the country right now, you can still see Sean's latest film called The Florida Project. If you can, you absolutely should. It's one of the year's best. Also, if you like this episode with Sean Baker, 
You'd probably enjoy our conversations with other directors from 2017. James Gray, Miguel Arteta, Janixa Bravo, Roger Ross Williams, Noel Wells. You can find all of those and more at www.talkeasypod.com. As always, our show is executive produced by David Chen, graphics by Ian Jones, illustrations by Krishna Shenoy. Our associate producer is Valerie Ettenhofer, and the show is produced by Dylan Peck. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talk Easy. Join us next week as it is going to be our last of 2017. We'll be doing our annual holiday show. I'll see you then. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count.